change the world, where we turn conversation into action. Thank you for joining. This episode is titled, Socialism, Why Not Be Honest? A Response to Jordan Peterson. Are you familiar with Dan Carlin and the Hardcore History Podcast? He's a self-described amateur historian who releases long masterpieces in podcast form where he breaks down certain conflicts or moments in history through an unbiased lens. As far as I can tell, he's simply trying to relay as much relevant information in a thought-provoking, captivating, well-researched, and unique way. I'm going to play a clip to start this podcast, a short two-minute quote from Dan Carlin's roughly 20-hour series on the First World War, titled Blueprint for Armageddon. He runs through the entire war, but what's relevant here is the Bolshevik Revolution, Karl Marx, and Communism, which he discusses for roughly 30 minutes to an hour. There's something he says referring to Marx specifically that I've yet to hear serious commentators acknowledge. This quote has stuck with me for years, seeing as his podcast was released in six parts throughout 2013 to 2015. It's been a while. It's been drilled into my head, and I've been waiting for some serious discussion on this point. Since I'm in the midst of reading Jordan Peterson's book and listening to his lectures, I felt he is as great a representation of the communicative style and tactics used to describe socialism that this podcast is all about. What he claims on the subject is relatively generic. It's the body bag argument, and it's valid, and it's true, and it happened and it shouldn't be ignored. But since I've yet to hear the conversation on socialism that I've wanted to hear, I figured I would do my best to have it myself and respond to some of the claims made regarding this now 170-year-old idea. Here is the clip from Blueprint for Armageddon, part six, five minutes into the podcast. With a system that seemed to be an improvement over what Europe was living with in the 1800s, explodes in importance in 1917, exactly where we are in this First World War story. He was renowned in his own day, within his own circles, but he certainly wasn't a household name. He becomes a historical superstar in 1917. And there's a little bit of irony to that, because in 1917, this figure's been dead 34 or 35 years. One of the best, or one of the worst, aspects of an idea, depending on whether you consider it good or dangerous, is the fact that it doesn't die with the originator. In 1917, all of a sudden, everybody starts hearing the name Karl Marx. Marx is often credited with being the originator of modern communism or Marxism, but I think that's probably giving him a little too much credit. After all, very few people come up with ideas out of nowhere, and Marx, like most people, stood on the shoulders of giants with his ideas. He was reading guys like the German philosopher Hegel and a lot of other people. But if a guy like Hegel's an example of the intellectual contagion, then Marx is an example of someone who mutated it further. And of course, perhaps the ironic tragedy of Marx is that Marx didn't get to be the implementer of his ideas. His ideas were adapted and morphed into different forms. Like many figures from history, if you could go back and show Karl Marx 
how he's treated in the history books and the things he's associated with, I think he might jump off a bridge. There's a lot of figures like that who are remembered for things that are almost 180 degrees different than what they devoted their lives to working for. Marx thought he was doing good, and yet today we think about his role in the deaths of tens of millions of people and the creation of some of the worst slave states in all human history. If you read Marx and find out what he was all about, that's exactly what he was hoping to prevent and stop and eliminate. What stands out the most in that clip is when he says Marx might jump off a bridge if he could see the way his ideas manifested. He was trying to prevent the exact opposite of what he is accredited for. It's eye-opening to consider how figures of the past would react if they saw how their ideas played out. Before hearing that statement, I had no words to describe the flaw in reasoning from both quote sides regarding socialism or communism. I had come to think that Marx's ideas were considered simply by diametrically opposed viewpoints. Socialism was either the golden ticket solution, which I disagreed, or it led to dictatorships and widespread human misery guaranteed, which I also found myself disagreeing with. Before listening to Carlin, I was aware of the dictatorships, Mao, Stalin, Lenin, Pol Pot, and I was aware of the potential 100 million deaths that occurred under their reigns. I read Marx a few times prior and have since read the Communist Manifesto a few times more. But what's so striking in what Dan Carlin said, it isn't that socialism was never tried and allowed to come to fruition properly. It's that by the time the first communist party ever comes to power, their ideas are so far from what Marx would have wanted that he wouldn't have been able to live with himself as these quote communist rulers came to power. I doubt Marx could have predicted that 170 years later we would still be discussing his ideas as if they were one of only two or three ways or isms to organize society under and live in this world. In 2018, we're still discussing Smith and Locke's conceptions of capitalism exposed in the 1750s and Marx's socialism from 1848 as if they are the best solutions conceivable, the only way to do things, and the only way worth discussing in which we organize society in the year 2018. The only way worth discussing in which we organize society in the year 2018 was imagined by humans who lived 150 to 250 years ago. We've heard from those pro-socialism that it was simply never tried properly. With a malignant leader and enlightened citizens, socialism is some sort of utopia. That we could have a state that provides the means of survival for the citizens, with each contributing in whatever positive way they can to further the betterment of everyone. Christopher Hitchens used to illustrate this point beautifully when he would explain how teachings of Spinoza and Thomas Paine have never been adapted by any large enough body of citizens to see what is possible when science and reason are the true building blocks of an organized community. We've also heard from the capitalists that suggest true prosperity is through the free market system. Free trade, deregulation, and little to no government interference is the best. These two ideas truly are diametrically opposed, 
they're kind of exact extreme opposites when you boil them down. But in practice, in the real world, can we stop pretending that either idea would work perfectly? And especially stop pretending that the US and Canada are beacons of pure capitalism, while a place like China is communist. I've mentioned this a few times before now, how interesting it is that we choose to debate outdated, imperfect, incomplete ideas rather than forming new ones. It's been 150 years since someone has proposed a seriously considered economic arrangement. Hasn't enough time passed where we can see that those who initiated this system, they couldn't foresee ubiquitous air travel, the internet, or even the great world wars of the 1900s. I've been experimenting in podcasts for just 17 episodes now, but I'm confident enough to share that new ideas are not a bad thing. And discussing old ideas? Well, it's valuable to admit that part of them is good while other parts are outdated or bad. It's an, it's an important exercise that we all could benefit from doing in many realms. I'll get to Jordan Peterson in a second, but let's think about this for a moment. Why is it that, to a capitalist, the moment someone says something positive about socialism, they're branded as some kind of blind utopian marching toward millions of deaths? And why is it that if a socialist ever hears the positive reality about how markets operate, why would they brand that person now as some cold-hearted, greedy, planet-ruining capitalist? Neither of these opinions are true. There are good, valuable aspects and elements within communism, just as there are good, valuable aspects existing within capitalism. Neither, I would say, are great. Separately and to their utmost extreme, both can be catastrophic. I'll try to lay out some traditional viewpoints within socialism, a creating utopia summary, if you will. The government owns the property, the means of production and land. The people work for the system to keep society functioning so that everyone can access equally what is produced. They share the workload unevenly, as the classic example to illustrate the unfairness is that a doctor is paid the same as a janitor. Regardless of your input, the output remains the same. Marx wrote that manifesto in a time when income inequality was damaging the fabric of society. There were people living in palaces while others were starving. That actually sounds pretty similar to the position we're in today on a global scale. So can we be honest and admit that socialist ideas can be attractive to some and the resurfacing is predominantly with those born long after the atrocities of the communist parties around the globe took place. Socialism is a decent idea, but a person living in our time, with the access to the entirety of recorded human history, should be able to see the flaws given enough time for research. It contradicts many elements of human nature, but Marx also never did discuss dictatorships and rule by force. As far as I'm aware, he wasn't pro-secret police and labor camps and forced slavery. Jordan Peterson, and Bill O'Reilly for that matter, need to contend with the fact that people in certain positions of the hierarchical structure of society find these ideas attractive, so attractive that tens of millions of people died while some tried to implement imperfect versions of this imperfect idea. Those people aren't idiots. 
they're not confused or foolish. They're the oppressed, the truly oppressed underclass of society, the people with marginal access to resources and no true ability to direct the flow of community or ascend from the depths of their starting position in life. I don't think any ism is worth adopting. Environmentalism, feminism, conservatism, liberalism, these boxes aren't productive to be placed inside. Rather, it's most productive to learn as much as you can from each ism and try to adopt the best aspects and elements from each. Socialism certainly isn't an exception. It's not an ism worth adopting, in my opinion. But we need to be clear about what it isn't as well. It isn't a guidebook to totalitarian regimes. It isn't a step-by-step -step program that leads to tens of millions of deaths. It's a set of ideas where living in a more communal way where each citizen participates positively and reaps the benefits of production in a supposedly, but clearly not, fair way. It's attractive to the 99% of the human population who can see that it's certainly not fair that 1% of the humans hold 99% of the wealth and resources. This is where Jordan Peterson really comes in. I've been reading his book, 12 Rules for Life, and have been enjoying it. I can see why it's so popular, and the ideas he's espousing in there are important and valuable. I'm not afraid to admit I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson. After doing about 100 hours of research, I can say I find myself agreeing with maybe 70 to 80% of what he's striving toward. I've got to say, some of it is absolutely spot on, and I applaud my fellow Canadian for making such an intellectual impact in the world that is affecting many in transformational ways. But that 20%, the 20% he says just as confidently and with the same stone-cold conviction as he says the good stuff, well, that's where I find myself feeling compelled to respond. It's interesting how such an intelligent human who espouses personal development is seemingly unwilling to develop personally the ability to engage openly and honestly with ideas he may disagree with, he may find dangerous, he may oppose, but simply need to be addressed. You can't just have a bunch of people who shout at you and disagree with you so vehemently and argue with you over and over while you repeat the same response, hoping that maybe this time it'll change someone's mind. Or continuing to call people utopians, or claiming to read their minds and assume others' perceptual lenses. I wouldn't be making any type of criticism here, except for the fact that Jordan Peterson is in the business of changing minds. So why not face the intellectual challenge of opposing the ideas you find dangerous as a steelman? rather than a straw man. If you're going to say neo-Marxists are marching us toward a new totalitarian state or advocating for it, you have to back a statement like that up. I can't find many people in the US or Canada who think that we should just switch to communism. That's a fairy tale argument to make. But there are people who find value in the socialist doctrine. Rather than simply telling them they're going to wind up mass murderers like Lenin and Stalin. Why not engage? We've seen enough communist experiments to see that it doesn't work, and to those who say it's never been applied properly. We should be able to see that the 150-year-old idea isn't applicable today anyway.
But it's not like because socialism isn't perfect and doesn't work properly that somehow capitalism is just the be-all, end-all solution to every problem in the world. What about something new? Why is it never acknowledged in the first place that we're living in a capitalist-socialist hybrid society in North America or China or most developed nations? The very function of government is to implement and apply socialist programs to fill the inherent or perceived gaps that exist within the marketplace. The government collects resources from the citizens, taxes, pools them together, and redistributes them in ways that are supposed to be beneficial for all, not just the uber-productive. We have roads and infrastructure, public education, some countries have public health care, we have police. The military is the largest socialist program in North America, and most likely the world. Insurance is mandatory. These are socialist programs operating within the capitalist framework. Even Gordon Gecko, he would get insurance on his Bentley. Mr. Greed is good, but recognize the value in that socialist program. There's no great way for the profit motive to maximize well-being in regards to profitless endeavors, like education. We could have private schools and make people pay. All roads could be toll roads, and you'd have to pay everywhere you drive. But I think we can see that's not functional. The market can't really make these greater good type of societal foundations work. Socialism is not a bad word. It's a solution and a response to a problem with the inequalities that the market system produces. It's extreme, it's flawed, and it's almost the exact opposite of markets. But again, how intelligent could Marx have possibly been about global economic affairs in the year 2018? Also, how compelling a movement would he have created if he included caveats such as socialism is best for schools and healthcare, but the marketplace and bourgeois should still compete and innovate in the private sphere? The manifesto itself was intended to be extreme and dramatic. But again, I can't say that anyone non-psychotic reading about an economic alternative to capitalism in 2018 is going to think the best way to get there is to murder and enslave entire populations. That's more of a capitalistic or colonization type of idea, ironically, anyway. Moreover, why are we vilifying a man who proposed an alternative to capitalism? What other alternatives are there? Why are there no other alternatives? Capitalism is an arbitrary economic game, an organized outgrowth of the prior system, trade and barter. And the, quote, capitalist societies of today are implementing elements of socialism. Perhaps it's time for an outgrowth of those two outdated economic systems altogether. You can use elements from the prior system to shape the new, better idea. This is what the Weinstein brothers are referring to when they talk about Game B. It's just upsetting that Jordan Peterson wants to conflate the only well-known alternative to our certainly flawed but not as bad as many on the left would say current economic paradigm with guaranteed totalitarian regimes followed by millions of deaths. The same used to happen to Christopher Hitchens when he would talk about atheism. The opposition would often use the same names, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, as some sort of exemplar of an atheist. It's perhaps reactionary or precautionary logic at work, but it's incomplete thinking 
and it's dangerous to paint someone like Christopher Hitchens, an atheist socialist, as a mass murderer waiting to happen. I think it would be in someone like Jordan Peterson's best interest, someone with an audience, someone intelligent and thoughtful, to engage openly with the ideas that he opposes, and consider that those espousing the potentially dangerous ideas are not enemies. They're not stupid. They may have an incomplete or flawed view of the past, present, and future, but they've demonstrated they're willing to learn and want the world to improve. That is important in itself. And it gets to me when either side of any debate looks at those on the other side as irredeemable or not worth talking to or just stupid. Because the people on the other side of an argument want the world to be better. They just may have a hole in their logic, or are operating on faulty information. Or maybe you are, or I am. Rather than dismissing ideas as utopian or socialist, and not engaging in any meaningful way, I would certainly love to hear why it actually is dangerous to sacrifice individual sovereignty for the quote, greater good. Because it is dangerous, and Jordan Peterson could explain much better than I could why. Perhaps it would be beneficial to address how thinking in terms of vilifying the successful is not a recipe for human flourishing. But what's most important, in my opinion, is that those who are well-educated, well-read, and thoughtful, really, can't dismiss ideas by caricaturizing them and caricaturizing those who espouse those ideas. And now for the final segment the way I end every podcast, with a semi-actionable piece of information that can hopefully make life or the world a little better. How to create utopia. When it comes to any ism, there's a rule of thumb I try to apply. First, recognize that it is an ism because at some point, some group of humans have found something within that set of ideas compelling and attractive. Secondly, Realize that as an individual, you are not bound by the confines of any intellectual proposition. You don't have to abide by any set of principles. However, it is beneficial to learn what principles lead to flourishing, what principles lead to suffering. And by matter of simply continuing to exist after broadening the horizons of your own consciousness, you will become a vessel in which good ideas flow right through. And you also see that never is changing your mind a bad idea. I refer to environmentalism and feminism. There are ideas within each of those isms which are certainly positive and beneficial to the human race. I like them and espouse them. Judaism. There are ideas contained within that which are positive and beneficial to the human race. I like those ideas as well. But I'm not going to form my identity around any ism, because there are just so many out there that just like religion, you're rolling the dice if you try to choose which one is the true and only one. We create utopia by recognizing that if you identify as a quote socialist, you need the quote capitalists, and vice versa. We need opposing viewpoints, and we need to take them seriously. If not, progress will be truly hampered. We need people who disagree to work together to find the best possible solution to any given problem. We can see it all around us today, 
people willing to revert to an ideology or agree with their own tribe regardless of the question, given answers, and where a solution might lead. I've said it before and I'm sure I'll say it again. The us-against-them mentality that has been brewing around the world since, well, perhaps before humanity, is an impulse that we can supersede and transcend. Now more than ever, we need to see those we disagree with as allies and work to come together to figure out what actually is the best way to move forward, knowing what we know as a species almost two decades into the 21st century. We are living in an unimaginable utopia to generations past. The question now is just how incredible or how miserable an existence will we decide to create in the future? for listening to this week's episode of Creating Utopia. If you found it valuable, please share it with a friend. Follow me on Twitter at creating underscore utopia and make sure to ask questions, comment. I'll make every effort to reply to them all. Stay tuned for the next podcast, which will be regarding George Orwell's 1984.